I wanted to s- slide some ice cream up my loose booty. How else am I going to get greased? You're a rich girl and you're gone too far cause Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch. This is the show that tells you all the untold stories behind your favorite and not-so-favorite songs. I'm your host, Lindsay Tucker, joined this week and every week by Aviv Rubenstein. Aviv, hello! Hello, how are you? I'm fine! Uh, sure. Yeah. Same. It's Wednesday of a holiday week, and you might have COVID. I might have COVID. We're going to find out live on air whether I have COVID or not. That is fantastic. So How many minutes do we have to go? I think like 10. All right. I don't actually know. Um, okay. What are we talking about today, Lindsay? I have no fucking idea. Yes. Yeah, so we're doing this a little differently than typical than we typically do. We're doing this dollop style in that Lindsay has no idea what we're talking about today. And I'm very excited about it. <laughs> fantastic. When am I going to find out? You eventually. Oh, cool. So this week, this is this is a this is one that I've been itching to do for a while, and I finally had the time to to sit down and do it. All right. Okay, so we're gonna start in Macon, Georgia, on December fifth, nineteen thirty-two. December fifth, nineteen thirty-two. Okay. Yeah, December fifth. Ricardo Wayne Penniman was born, third of twelve children. Ricky Martin's father. Sure. Ricardo, don't, don't guess, because you might guess, and I, that, will, that will ruin the magic. Okay, okay, okay. Fun fact, his first name was Ricardo, but there was an error on his, on his birth certificate, and it was written as Richard instead. But we're going to call him Ricardo. D- Dick. We're going to call him Ricardo for, for a minute. Okay. Uh, he was the third of 12 children, and his mother's name was Leva, Leva May, and his father was Charles or Bud Penniman. We're going to talk a lot about Charles. So, so Charles Bud was a church deacon and a brick mason, and he sold bootleg moonshine on the side, and he owned a club, like a nightclub called the Tip Inn Inn. I feel like some of these jobs are hypocritical. Well, why would you say that? <laughs> He's a church deacon, uh-huh. and he sells black market moonshine at his own club, the Tip Inn. Inn. <laughs> but right. Brick Mason a is Trump, fine. a Trumpy complex. Yeah, maybe. And his mother was a member of the New Hope Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia. Richard's mom, Ricardo's mom. Yeah, possibly as a result of complications at birth, he had a slight deformity. One of his legs was shorter than the other, and this produced like an unusual way that he walked and his alleged effeminate appearance this is from grunge.com ricardo's leg was three inches shorter than his left which drastically impacted his gait his steps had an inconsistent cadence and his hips swayed in a pronounced fashion as a result neighborhood children assumed quote he was trying to twist and walk feminine since some kids are soulless insult machines young ricardo became consist a consistent recipient of homophobic slurs and verbal vitriol on the bright side the bullying bred a competitive streak in him driving ricardo to outdo everyone 
in every endeavor he could. And as one of 12 siblings, he had he always had someone to compete with. 12 siblings, shit. Tw- one of 12, yeah. That's a lot. His leg also introduced him to music. People pointed out that Ricardo's mother believed that sending him to church would heal his affliction. His leg mm. never lengthened, but his he Are you sure? A- did they pray? Thoughts and they prayer? did. They did pray, <laughs> but at church he he realized that he could sing. Right, that's where he that's where he dis, dis, discovered his voice. In October of 1947, Sister Rosetta Tharp overheard a 14 year old Ricardo singing songs before a performance at the Macon City Auditorium, and she invited him to open her show. Do you do you know who Sister Rosetta Tharp is? Nope. So she was she is like truly the inventor of rock and roll. She she was like a gospel lady that would play a a Gibson SG guitar. We're we're gonna listen to a little bit of her doing down by the riverside. They still make this guitar. So this video is not from 1947, but she was doing this in the 40s, which is like pretty incredible. First, first rock and roll, or one of the first rock and roll musicians. Super cool. Yeah. So after the show, Sister Rosetta paid Ricardo, inspire him, like, this is like the first time he's like, oh, you can get paid by like performing. Um, And he took up the piano after he was inspired to play. uh, He was inspired to play the piano after hearing Ike Turner's piano intro on the song Rocket 88. Huck's Hidden Harmonies presents a rediscovering music series. So we've got a little bit of this early rock and roll like honky tonk jangly piano played by noted horrible person Ike Turner. And this is from 1951. As Vice elaborated, Ricardo was berated and degraded by his father, Bud. And this is the quote from Grunge. Like the kids outside, Bud Penniman deemed Ricardo too feminine. The issue wasn't his son's feminine walk, but the the budding rock star's long hair and propensity to put on makeup. Per The Guardian, Ricardo also wore his mother's curtains and proclaimed himself the Magnificent One. I like that. Yeah, right? The Magnificent One. (laughs) These charming, glamorous antics infuriated Bud, who was a church deacon, and a firm believer in gender norms. He not only insulted his his son, but rapidly attacked him. Bud viciously beat Ricardo, who was, quote, naked and tied up during the unconscionable assaults. When pulverizing his son didn't work, Bud banished him from the house altogether. Ricardo was just 13 years old, rejected by his father, and harassed by hostile peers. He ultimately found acceptance with a white couple named Anne and Johnny Johnson, and it was a complete reversal of fortune. According to Rolling Stone, the Johnsons owned a different nightclub called the TikTok Club. Do we know the TikTok Club from anything else? I don't think so. It may have made an appearance in the Elvis movie. Because Elvis is coming up around this time. We're going we're gonna to talk to Elvis in a minute. So yeah, before the 10th grade, Ricardo left his family home and he joined a, a medicine show. Hudson's Medicine Show. This was in 1949. So what is a medicine show? It's like, do you know the term snake oil salesman? Yeah. 
He was literally selling snake oil. What? So he was traveling from city to city, selling these tonics and cures and powders as a part of Dr. Hudson's medical show. He was helping Dr. Hudson sell his counterfeit wares. He told Rolling Stone way after the, uh, sorry, this is a quote from Rolling Stone. He would go into towns, have all the black people come around and tell them that the snake oil was good for everything, but he was lying. Snake oil. I was, this is Ricardo, I was helping him lie. He had a stage out in front and a feller by the name of James would play the piano and I would sing, Caldonia, Caldonia, what makes your head so hard? Oh my god. But what really is snake oil? It's like, oh, this will heal you? Yeah, fun fact, snake snake oil actually is a real thing and was a real um, tonic that did cure people. And then there were these snake oil salesmen who would just like make up these tonics that didn't actually work and then label them as snake oil all oh, these this is snake oil from the orient or from deepest darkest africa or whatever the fuck right and claim that they would cure people but they actually wouldn't so actual snake oil is curative i learned this from uh, a great podcast called no such thing as a fish oh yeah no covid no covid i was gonna ask you for a covid update back to the snake oil sorry yeah uh, if it's really healing, then why is it like a snake oil salesman is a liar? So, Because we're missing a layer, right? So step one was snake oil was actually curative. Step two was a bunch of people who were selling fake snake oil. Got it. And then the term snake oil salesman became a pejorative term for people who were selling the fake shit, not the real the shit. The fake stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, glad I had that little lesson. Thank you. Yeah, right. Thanks to No Such Thing as Fish. Ricardo also performed in drag at this time, performing under the name Princess Levon. In 1950, Ricardo joined his first musical band, which is called Buster Brown's Orchestra. Buster Brown's was a shoe store where my mom used to buy my shoes. Okay. And Buster Brown gave him a nickname, Little Richard. Blam! I thought it was Elvis. Oh, no, not Elvis. I thought Elvis had one leg that was shorter than the other. I don't think so. I like, was like sure about it. <laughs> no, because he went into the army. They wouldn't have let him into the army if he had one leg that was shorter than the other. I guess he didn't well, do much why, fighting. That's why he had to wear funky shoes. Mm, no, I think, you're, I think you're confusing Elvis from what, that one scene with Elvis in Forrest Gump. <laughs> Potentially. In his childhood, he was also nicknamed Little Richard by his family because he was so small and skinny. Yes, we are talking about Little Richard. Tutta frutta. Is that Little Richard? That's our song this week. Woohoo! I got one thing right, finally. Do you know anything about Tutti Frutti? No. I am so fucking excited. <laughs> the uh, Washington Post in 1984, uh, in 1984 called him the Bronze Liberace, the Georgia Peach, and he also called himself the, the Queen of Rock and Roll. The queen of rock and roll. Okay, so was he like stifled to hide this drag queen sensibility that he had? Have you seen pictures of Little Richard? Yeah. Do you think he was stifled to do anything? A little. Like, I don't a remember little. him calling himself a queen or... Like, he call, Yeah, at the, even at the time he was... He, call, he called himself Princess Fantastic or whatever. He did? Yeah, uh, the Magnificent One. When he wrapped himself right. up in his no, mother's... No, no, I know. I'm saying I don't remember him doing that in the public eye, though, did he? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about where his um, kind of look came from. Okay, back to 1950. 
in Buster Brown's orchestra, Richard, I'm going to refer to him as Richard now. Richard performed on the minstrel show circuit in and out of drag. And he performed with various vaudeville acts such as Sugarfoot Sam from Alabama. <laughs> so he was, he was doing, he was like, performing singing dancing sometimes playing the piano but it seems like a little early for him to play the piano um on the minstrel show circuit and we talked a a little bit about minstrel shows in our um righteous brothers episode right um but they're not great they're not great so having settled in atlanta at this point richard began listening to rhythm and blues and frequented atlanta clubs including the harlem theater and the royal peacock where he saw the beginnings of the, the of rock and roll of rhythm and blues rock and roll richard was uh further influenced by ray brown and billy wright's flashy style of showmanship and they're like personas on stage so this is when he decided to become a rhythm and blues singer okay he really took a, a liking to billy wright um and modeled his kind of on stage look after billy wright so we'll i'll i'll show you a picture i'll send you a picture of billy wright billy wright's on stage persona he had a big pompadour he had a pencil thin mustache he had like pancake mm-hmm. makeup on his face so like you look at this picture you're like oh i can right i can see yeah. a little bit of little richard in there for sure and around this time he signed to rca victor records and he recorded a total of eight singles for rca victor including the blues ballad every hour and that became a hit in georgia but uh didn't really didn't really go anywhere else Mm -hmm. but it becoming a hit in georgia improved his relationship with his father and his father began regularly playing the song at his nightclub the tip in in on the jukebox okay and like telling everyone that's my son that's my son yeah and shortly after the the release of every hour richard was hired to front uh, like a like a big band orchestra and he played on army bases for a hundred dollars a week whoa hundred dollars a week yeah that's not very much let's do it let's do it i know but back then it was more Too but bad. not not horrible but uh let's take a let's take a quick digression to bud richard's father for a second according to the life and times of little richard bud used to bash richard's decision to become a musician but after the release of every hour he had a change of heart and listened to his own songs with pride Hmm. by then richard was 19 coming into his own as a as a performer and richard said my daddy had never been behind me in my career until then and he was just starting to come behind me he was going to buy me a car to help me in my traveling but Bud never got to give his son a car. In a GQ interview, Richard explained, my best friend Frank shot him. What? He was out of jail in a week. We never quite found out what really happened. What? Yeah. So Frank Tanner, Richard's best friend, according to Richard, was tossing firecrackers into a coal stove at the Tippin Inn, which Bud owned. And Bud was perturbed by his hijinks right he was just like annoyed yep. by it yep. bud kicked frank out of the, the bar things escalated 
Frank made a huge fuss outside, so Bud grabbed a gun and went to confront him. It's not clear what happened, but Bud wound up getting shot and killed. What the fuck? Yep. And so then he was only in jail for a week, so they never were like, what the fuck happened? I think he said it was like self-defense or like it was like a tussle or whatever. These were both black men, so I'm sure that the cops were like, who gives a shit? I'm, mm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making a, an assumption about 1950s Georgia. How dare you? How dare I? Um, but also in 1952, Richard left RCA Victor uh, after his records failed to chart. The, the records were not given much promotion. So he just, he was like, fine, fuck you then. Okay. So they weren't doing anything to promote it. So they weren't doing anything they were to promote it. He's like, favoring other artists. Fuck, yeah, fuck off. Uh, Richard moved to Houston and formed a band called the Tempo Toppers. And he was touring all the in like blues tours all around the South in Tijuana, New Orleans, Houston. Um, and then he joined Peacock Records in 1953, recorded eight more sides. Still did nothing. Oof. Right. None of his Peacock singles charted despite him starting to get a reputation for high energy antics on stage. Right. So he's so like people know him. People know that yeah. he's crazy. But like for whatever reason, I, I think I know the reason, but we'll we'll talk about it in a second. His singles are not doing shit. Okay. Um, Richard began complaining that he wasn't getting enough money from Don Roby, the head of Peacock Records. Roby punched him out. He like knocked him punched out. Punched him out. Yeah. So he's like, "Fuck this! I'm out. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not going to be uh re- recording anymore. I'm done." He went back to Macon in 1954, and he was like totally broke, and he was working as a dishwasher for Greyhound Lines. Like the Greyhound bus station. He was like in a... Oh, at the station. At the station. Yeah, he was working. He was washing dishes in in the bus station. And while in Macon, he met a drag performer, quote unquote, named Esquirita. And Esquirita had a flamboyant onstage persona and dynamic piano playing, both of which would deeply influence Richard's approach to music. So this is a picture of Esquirita. I see amazing pink sunglasses mm-hmm. with a lot of flair. Mm-hmm. Can't really tell what the flair is. Maybe like feather, but it's still part of the plastic, but it looks kind of like. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like a flower maybe. Okay. And then we have some big hair. Mm-hmm. Not really sure what the style's called when it's kind of like a mohawk out of curls. A pompadour. That's still the pompadour? I think so. I mean, I this mean, is like a big slightly... picture. This looks like a little Richard impersonator. It sure does. Yeah, but this is this is where he got his style from, Esquirita. He just stole it. Bees. Well, he was inspired by it. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so Richard was reinvigorated to be a performer again. So in 1955, he sent a demo to Specialty Records. And waited months before he got a call from the label. And then finally, in September of that year, the owner of Specialty Records loaned Richard the money to buy out of his contract with Peacock Records. 
and he set him to work with a producer named Robert Blackwell, also known as Bumps. Bumps Blackwell. Bumps. My humps, my humps, my humps. Exactly. So Richard is going to work with Bumps Blackwell, and upon hearing the demo of uh, that Richard sent to Specialty, Blackwell felt that Richard was Specialty Records' answer to Ray Charles. Right? He's like, "Oh man, like we can com- finally compete with Ray Charles." Hmm. Okay. Even though Richard himself was more attuned to like fat, he was like, "I want to be more like Fats Domino." Whatever. So Blackwell sent Richard to New Orleans and he recorded a bunch of demos uh, with uh, Fats Domino's session musicians, right? You like Fats Domino, come to his Mm -hmm. studio, record with his session musicians. And Richard's recordings that day failed to produce any inspiration or interest. Jesus. Right? I know. So like third, fourth (laughs) strike, right? This is the quote from uh, Bumps. The first session was to run six hours, and we planned to cut eight sides, which is like a song every 45 minutes. Oh, my God. Which is like part of the problem, right? Uh, Richard ran through the songs on his audition tape. So far, so good. But it wasn't really what I was looking for. I'd heard that Richard's stage act was really wild. But in the studio that day, he was very inhibited. So they're frustrated, and they went to relax at a dewdrop in for like lunch it says lunch but the do drop in is a nightclub so i'm assuming lunch was like 10 p.m like they started at like four in the afternoon went till 10 to get when to get lunch and then we're gonna record into the night okay but this is the story right they go to lunch at the do drop in and there's like a piano there and richard just hopped on the piano and sang for the first time in front of Bumps Blackwell, at least, this blues song called Tutti Frutti. Mm. Let's, take a, let's take a listen to Tutti Frutti, our song Finally. of the week. Finally. Oh, dude, you don't even fucking know.
Um, so what is your experience with the song? Um, I remember it from when I was a kid. Uh, that's really it. I've it's just always been in my life. Yeah, I don't know if I ever if I know the first time I heard this song, but like it's just always been yeah. there, right. So what? I mean, we could do a quick dramatic reading of the lyrics. Kay. Why don't you start us off? Wop bop loo bop wop bam boom. Tutti fruity, oh Rudy. Tutti fruity, oh Rudy. Tutti fruity, oh Rudy. Two more times. I got a gal named Sue. She knows just what to do. I've got a gal named Sue. She knows just what to do. She rocks to the east. She rocks to the west. But she's the gal that I love best. Tutti fruity, oh Rudy. I got a gal named Daisy. She almost drives me crazy. Got a gal named Daisy. She almost drives me crazy. She knows how to love me. Yes, indeed. Boy, you don't know what she do to me. So what is this song about? Two ladies. Two ladies. Sue and Daisy. And what? They love Richard. They love Richard. (laughs) So according to literally everyone involved, the song that Richard played for bumps blackwell was filthy really yes it's in charles white's 1984 biography the life and times of little richard he has the lyrics as tutti fruity good booty if i don't fit don't force it you can grease it make it easy wow okay once again, I just sent it to you. Tutti Fruity, good booty. If I don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it, make it easy. According to crack.com, the original lyrics were a wop op a loop a good goddamn Tutti Fruity loose booty. What? If I don't fit, don't force it. <laughs> right. So filthy. Like 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 not able to be put on on the radio. Okay, so tell me the story of how we got from if it don't fit, don't force it, and loose booty to Tutti Fruity O'Rudy. I will. Does O'Rudy so a first euphemism for loose booty? It, it might be. <laughs> so first, let's go with a, a wop op a loop op a lop bamboom or a good goddamn. Some sources have claimed that Richard sang a good goddamn instead of a wop bamboom. But according to notes in the 2012 reissue of this album, of the Little Richard album, Richard, later, who later became a minister, never took the Lord's name in vain and never would sing that lyric. And during an interview, Richard stated that this was a chant that he yelled at his boss what? when his boss was being a dick to him at the Greyhound bus station where he was washing dishes. <laughs> I'm so confused. I was a dishwasher at the Greyhound bus station in Macon, Georgia. I was making $12 a week for many years there. And I used to sing Tutti Fruity every night because the boss man would make me wash so many pots. 
And you couldn't say nothing back to him, so the only thing I could say to him to get back at him was wah bobble loo bobble la bam boom because he didn't know what I was saying and I didn't either. <laughs> okay, so that doesn't make any fucking sense, but that's what he said. It's just kind of nonsense because he can't say what he wants to say. Right. And so, according to Song Facts, Charles Connor, who was Little Richard's drummer in the 50s and 60s, told Uncut Magazine that Richard took a wop bop loo bop a lop bam boom from Charles playing the drums. So the, Charles Connor says, quote, Richard called me about a month and a half before he passed, and we talked for a long time, and he said, Charles, thanks for helping me create my style of singing. He called us the architects of rock and roll, but said I was the bricklayer, laying the foundation of the rhythm for him. So Charles Connor claims that the wop bop loop bop lop bum boom is like the drum fill, right? Mm. But he also is like, Richard called me. There were no witnesses. Richard is dead now, and he says that I was the bricklayer of rock and roll. Thank right. you very much. <laughs> right. So yeah, I don't know, but we're good. So so now we're going to talk about how we went from loose booty, don't force it, to tutti frutti o Rudy. Don't worry, by the way. We will also talk about some of the other like wild little Richard stories, mm. like after. I wasn't after worried. This. So Bumps Blackwell heard the song. Bumps and. According to Bumps, the song was like sung in frustration because the original version was much slower. It was like a song that was played over like a seven minute period. What? It was like a bump, 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 bump. It was like low, like low and slow for like people to grind to at the clubs. Oh, tuna fruity. Loose booty. But he played it in frustration, so he played it really fast. He was just like rushing through it, right? And Bumps knew that the lyrics needed to be changed for a radio. So he co- so he contracted a songwriter named Dorothy Labostri. What the? So Dorothy Labostri came in to help clean the lyrics up. This is Bumps's quote. I said to her, look, you got to come write some lyrics to this because I can't use the lyrics Richard's got. He had some terrible words in there. Well, Richard was embarrassed to sing the song and she was not certain that she wanted to hear it. Time was running out and I knew it could be a hit. So I talked I using every argument I could think of. And finally, I convinced them to do the song. Richard turned to face the wall and sang two or three times. And Dorothy listened. So Richard was too shy to sing this in front of a woman, like a single woman. But he was performing it in clubs. So I think it was just like, sing it for this one person. Yeah, it's easier sometimes to like yeah. hide behind the crowd. So this is from the Wall Street Journal. The supreme architect of both raw sound and double entendres is, of course, Little Richard, whose screams and nonsense syllables allow a steamy lust to take the form of a nursery rhyme. It's well known that his musical earthquake of a song, Tutti Frutti, was originally a sex manual of sorts. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but Ann Powers, in her book, Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. That's the title of the book. She notes that the cleaned up version of Tutti Frutti was much more sexually charged than the original. The pre-recorded Tutti Frutti was a nightclub song that was an easygoing tempo, and it was actually allowed to meander for like 20 minutes or more. Whereas the two minutes and change version of that Little Richards did for Specialty Records 
spews notes as if they were raging hormones, growling like a blues man one minute and whooping like a gospel queen the next, shouting out nonsense words in a way that signified everything and nothing, entering a truly undone state. Mm. A hedonistic frenzy. Yeah. And so I'm not going to like, there's no moment in this story where Dorothy's like scribbling on paper being like, can't write good booty. What do I do? And like, it, it just seems like she was like, oh, turn it into nonsense words. Right. There was no like um, incredible spark of inspiration that that was like, oh, Rudy. And like, not to be a snob here, but these lyrics suck. I was like, I can't believe they pulled in a professional lyricist to redo the lyrics. And what we got was a bunch of nonsense. Oh, Rudy. <laughs> yeah. So, so I have a feeling that Dorothy was brought in more of like, as like a standards and practices type of person. She has writing credit on the song, as does Bumps. But I have a feeling that it's like, oh, what can he get away with? Hmm as opposed to like i need some brilliant lyrics right now i also have a feeling that i got a gal named sue she knows just what to do totally was like different oh different in the original version okay i think so i think it well still a seems gal sexual. named sue is probably the same she rocks to the east and she rocks to the west was pro- is probably what was changed mm. that still has some sexual innuendo it does a bit. So this is from Produce Like a Pro. It's about the like it's about like recording stylings and stuff like that. Uh, they recorded the song. Pianist Huey Smith. Huey's middle Huey's nickname was Piano. Piano. Huey Piano Smith was hired for the session, and he performed many of these early tra- earlier tracks that no one liked. <laughs> right. However, with the last-minute edition of Tutti Fruity and only a few minutes left to record, there was no time to teach Huey Smith the part, and Little Richard had to perform the piano for the song himself. So I think, unfo- like, not to speak ill, but I think that the reason that his music never connected in the first 24 tracks that he recorded was that he wasn't playing the piano himself. Mm. It was, like, very kind of dis- dissociated. Mm-hmm. Bumps Blackwell explained, there had been no time to write an arrangement, so I had to take the chance on Richard playing the piano himself. That wild piano was essential to the success of the song. It was impossible for the other piano players to learn it in the short time that we had. I put a microphone between Richard and the piano and another inside the piano, and we started to record it. It took three takes, Hmm. and in 15 minutes, we had Tutti Frutti. Wow. So what you're hearing is take three. Pretty impressive pretty impressive the song also introduced little richard's famous like woos woo and the big ah scream and uh he sings that right before the tenor sax solo performed by lee allen richard's scream had a practical purpose because no one knew the fucking song so it was to let allen know that his solo was coming up <laughs> they were they were recording on just three tracks, so overdubbing the horns was not an option. And so he just yelled for Alan to start playing. <laughs> he just yelled. But Little Richard didn't invent the name Tutti Frutti. It was a popular flavor of ice cream. The phrase is Italian for all fruits, tutti frutti. And the ice cream had little bits of like candied fruit mixed in. Mm-hmm. Tutti Frutti ice cream has been served for at least 160 years. And uh, its first appearance was on a bill 
for a dinner in England in 1860, so 162 years ago. And recipes for Tutti Frutti ice cream were found in cookbooks of the late 19th century. A Tutti Frutti ice cream recipe was included in an 1874 cookbook, Common Sense in the Household, a manual for practical housewifery. Oh, I love that. Um, and in 1888, one of the first gum flavors to be sold in vending machines was also called Tutti Frutti. I do remember the gum. So I'm looking up the ice cream right now. It looks really good. Yeah, it looks good, right? A fresh peach base, plenty of fresh cherries, strawberries, and a few chunks of frozen bananas. And don't forget the rum. So there are many different... Uh, Recipes. Recipes for Tutti Frutti ice yeah. cream. And there are recipes that are like, this isn't the Tutti Frutti that you get in Europe. This is American Tutti Frutti. So I think that there was like, I think it's kind of a catch-all. But this song is ostensibly not about the ice cream. Are you sure? I want no, to sure. slide some ice cream up my loose booty. Well, you're not wrong. How else am I going to get greased? <laughs> Just give it. It's an embarrassment of riches for the pull quote for this episode. <laughs> All right, go on. So in 1938, so ostensibly Tutti Frutti, their Little Richard song, was not about the ice cream. However, in 1938, there was a jazz duo named Slim Gallard, Gayard, and Slam Stewart, and they were they recorded as the group Slim and Slam, and they released. A popular song called Tutti Frutti, which was about the ice cream. I just spit water on my keyboard. All right, let's hear the ice cream song. Let's hear the ice cream song, baby. I don't want vanilla. I don't want chocolate. Bring me some of that good Tutti Frutti. Tutti Frutti Frutti. this this is amazing (laughs) this is good right yeah i actually can hear a little bit of an evolution from this to the richard yeah i would say so there's no there's no real documentation proving it but the structure of the song is very similar yeah totally i would not believe that he's never heard this and just wrote tutti frutti a wop bop a loo bop a lop bam boom. Um, so I I also would believe that he heard he I would find it hard to believe that he never heard the song because this song reached number three on the Whoa. on the Billboard charts. Oh shit! And Slim and Slam were were people of color. It like feels like this this is kind of a no brainer that he'd be aware of this. And and it kind of speaks to like uh, taking the nursery rhyme, the, like this was a novelty jazz song, right? So it's like mm-hmm. taking the taking the nursery rhyme novelty jazz song, turning it into something super filthy, um, like uh, Seven Rings, right? The that um, I don't even know who sings it, but it's like these are a few of my favorite things, but they like make it modern and kind of dirtier than the sound of music. Do you know that song? You know what I'm talking about? No, I thought you were talking about the Seven Rings of Hell, and then it took a turn no. to sound of music. <laughs> Ariana Grande has a song called Seven Rings, and it's just... Oh, sure, I've the, heard that song. The, these are a few of my favorite things. Yep. Yeah, anyway. Mm-hmm. 
The Library of Con- this is from the Library of Congress. Once it was released, Tutti Frutti sold two hundred thousand copies in a week and a half. Two hundred thousand. In so a week nationally. And a half. Yeah, huge, huge, huge. It would spend 22 weeks on the R&B charts, and it, it, re- it reached 17 on the pop charts. And by 1968, so you know, 15 years after it was released, or a little less than that, it had sold over 3 million copies. According to Crack.com, this is an unheard, unheard of feat from a black musician by then. At that and t- to go then. from like literally zero traction to like zero to a hundred, that's crazy. Yeah. Like the other eight songs that he was recording, fucking Bumps was like, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. This will be your 24th flop in a row. <laughs> um, and and so the n- it was number 17 on the pop chart. So this was like the everybody mm. charts, not mm-hmm. just the not just the black. Well, I don't remember what it was called. Something probably really horrible back then. Charts. Yeah. Um, but sadly, this was trumped by a cover that was made that was done by Pat Boone and released m- one month later. What the fuck? So that made it to number twelve. We can take a listen to Pat Boone's anemic cover of Tutti Frutti. Oh my God! Who is this tool? Pat Boone. He like he's like a fucking he's like a a, a a Johnny Mathis, very sanitized singer type. This is heinous. So they just gave it to some white guy, Ken Doll. You think he knows he's singing about anal sex? Do you think he knows about anal sex? Probably not. So, Little Richard was convinced that white kids were buying the Pat Boone record and then putting his record inside the cover so that they could show their parents that they were listening to Pat Boone, but they would actually be listening to Richard's version. Dude, that's fucked up. And part of Richard's, like, competitive streak... He would gleefully attempt to make all of his follow-up songs too high-pitched and too fast for Pat Boone to be able to cover. In his follow-up songs, he specifically put them out Tried of Tried to sing them out of, of Pat, Pat Boone's, Boone's range. Yes. <laughs> nice. I love that. As Little Richard himself says, a lot of people call me the architect of rock and roll. I don't call myself that, but I believe it's true. Also, for the record, he does occasionally call himself that. He does. <laughs> Tutti Frutti was named by Mojo Magazines as the most influential rock and roll song of all time. This was in 2007. And it beat out the likes of Bob Dylan, the Beatles, and Elvis. And in the buttoned down and repressed early 50s, Tutti Frutti's opening scream of wop bop a bop a lop bam boom must have sounded at worst like the opening battle cry in a cultural war between adults and teens and at its best like a torrent of filth wailed by a bisexual alien. Oh my god. So this is the inception of a wop bop a Like yeah, it's he in Greece. apparently made it up. And you know, you know the Grease song, right? Have you seen Grease yet? I have not seen Grease yet. <laughs> oh my god. Does you know he do? Do they do that in Greece? Oh, wow! I know this song. I guess. I guess this is what well, this does take from Little Richard. 
Later in 1956, Elvis Presley did what Elvis Presley did and covered the song, making it even more popular. And Elvis has a complicated relationship with black musicians, giving them maybe some credit but not enough credit and sanitizing their music for white audiences. Is that his fault entirely? No. Should he have done a little bit more to elevate black artists? Yes. This is better than the Pat Boone, for sure. Yeah. And they both had a too short leg. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> so this is from grunge.com, but it is a quote from Little Richard. Okay. Ready? When Tutti Fruity came out, Elvis was immediately put on me, dancing and singing my songs on television. This is mm. from the life and times of Little Richard. He said a lot of people in management didn't like it because I was a white attraction. According to him, that resentment transla- that resentment translated into blatant disrespect. While performing in Las Vegas, for example, Richard received worse accommodations than white musicians and got financially shafted. This is a, a, a story that we have heard. This is 100% not times. surprising, yeah. unfortunately. He did not, however, simmer in silence. Good. He demanded fairer treatment, but in the end, he believed that racism robbed him of his musical legacy. During a 1999 interview with the Washington Post, Richard touted himself as the architect of rock and roll before lamenting that, quote, if I was a white guy, they'd say he's the king of rock and roll. But if it's a black guy, they'd add self-proclaimed. They'd say he's the self-proclaimed king of rock and roll. Shit. It's not not true. Which I think is a pretty incisive criticism. Yeah. Uh, okay. So now we get into some of the weird little Richard stories. <laughs> Are we starting, where are we starting on the scale of zero to weird? This is, we're starting pretty low, but it gets weird pretty fast. (laughs) Great. In 1956, an Amarillo district attorney happened to be attending a little Richard. This is from 98.7 The Bomb. It's like a radio station in Amarillo, Texas. In 1956, an Amarillo district attorney happened to be attending a little Richard show at a venue called The Nat. And he wasn't too thrilled with what he was seeing. He decided to take matters into his own hands and do something to restore order. Back in the day, concerts tended to have intermissions where the performer would take a little break and return to the stage for the second half of the show. Elton John did this at the Dodger Stadium concert. Little did the crowd know that there would be no second half of the show on this evening. So during intermission, Little Richard was approached by the DA who asked him to change his performance. And Little Richard didn't seem to much care for this request as he loudly objected. And the DA wound up arresting him. What, inf- what, was, what got the DA so riled up? Little Richard took his shirt off. Shut yep, up. Mm-hmm. He bared his upper half for the crowd, who I imagine squealed with excitement. And the DA was having none of it. So the DA managed to get the authorities to arrest him for lewd behavior, even though he hadn't really done anything illegal. It's not like he exposed his body, the parts of his body that would be considered lewd. He just took his shirt off. Well, can I take my shirt off? Sure. Or is that considered lewd? The the, the DA from 1956 will kick down your door and arrest you. (laughs) We're not too far off in this country. We're certainly not. But the authorities hauled little Richard away and the show was over. 
Okay, this is a really bizarre one. In 1957, Little Richard, this is all claimed by his autobiography. He was on a flight from Melbourne to Sydney in Australia, and the plane was experiencing some difficulties. And he claimed that he saw the plane's red hot engines (laughs) and felt that the angels were holding the plane up. And at the end of the Sydney performance, he saw a bright red fireball flying across the sky above him and claimed that he was deeply shaken. What he actually saw in the sky was the launching of Sputnik. No shit. Yes, shit. (laughs) But Richard saw it as a sign from God to (laughs) repent. Oh, shit. And stop performing secular music and give up his wild lifestyle. We'll talk a little bit about his wild lifestyle in a second. Yeah, this is the quote. This big light came over and it was frightening to me. And I told the guys I was with in Australia, I'm coming out of this business. I have always feared that the world was going to end. We got on a ferry and I said, well, if you don't believe me, I'm going to stop. If you don't believe I'm going to stop, I'll throw all my diamonds into the ocean. And I threw all the rings that I had on my fingers into the water. Very Titanic of you, Richard. Yeah, right. Returning to the States 10 days earlier than expected, Richard later read the news that his original flight crashed into the Pacific Ocean. What the? Yes. So the flight that he was supposed to be on crashed. Meanwhile, the flight he was on was burning up. So he's like, clearly this is a sign from God. That I'm supposed to die? That I'm supposed to give up my wild lifestyle. Okay. So he did a farewell performance at the Apollo Theater, and there was like a recording that was released later that month. And then he enrolled in college. He went to Oakwood College in Huntsville, Alabama to study theology. What the fuck? Later on, he admitted that there were other reasons for leaving that were were not his spiritual rebirth. Because during his tenure at Specialty Records, despite earning millions of dollars for the label, Richard complained that he did not know that the label had cut a percentage of roy- the percentage of royalties he was supposed to earn for his recordings. So Specialty continued to release Richard's songs, including Good Golly Miss Molly, Kansas City, blah, 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 until 1960. But they cut the amount of royalties that he was getting, and they owned the publishing rights. So mm. Richard didn't get much for all of those covers. Shock. Finally, ending his contract with the label in 1960, Richard agreed to relinquish any royalties for the material. So he wasn't getting paid anything anymore. Why did he agree to that? I think, I I do think this like message from God thing is like a, I don't think it was really God, but I think that he believed that. I think that he really was like, this is all sin and vice and I got to get, I got to get out of this. Okay. We'll, We'll talk a little bit more about why i think that in a second in 58 richard formed the little richard evangel evangelistic team and traveled across the country to preach a month after his decision to leave secular music richard met ernestine harvin who was a secretary from washington dc and they got married they got married in 1959 and their uh their marriage ended in 1962 oh i was like happy for him for a second sorry but he released a gospel record produced by Quincy Jones, who later remarked that Richard's vocals impressed him more than any other vocalist he had ever worked with, which wow. makes sense. 
And by the early 60s, rock and roll had become dangerous enough to attract the censor of preachers, principals, and parents from one coast to another, though many waved dismissively when it came to a song whose ostensible subject was an ice cream flavor. So Tutti Frutti, despite being absolutely fucking filthy, missed all of the like rock and roll is the devil's music thing, especially because Richard was out of the limelight at that point. And and doing God's worth. Doing God's work. God's work. Richard returned to secular music in 1962, so he was only out of it for about five years. And this is because the concert promoter, Don Arden, persuaded Little Richard to tour Europe after telling him that his records were still selling well there. And mm-hmm. he was, uh, Sam Cooke, the great Sam Cooke, was going to be Richard's opening act. Oh, cool. Um, and Cooke Cook was delayed in arriving to Europe, and um, it forced him to cancel his show on the opening date and Richard only performed gospel material during the show and everyone fucking booed. Oh my God. Richard thought the whole thing was a gospel tour. So he's not out of secular music. I mean, he's not back in secular. Well, th- this is, this is his, this is the beginning of, this is how the he got into drug? back into Okay. Yes. So he, Richard thought it was a gospel tour. A teenage Billy Preston who would perform with the Beatles later on was a, in his gospel band he thought it was a gospel tour and performed solo because sam cook could like was delayed in getting to europe um and performing the gospel only music during the show led to booze from the audience who was expecting richard to sing the rock and roll hits free bird nothing free bird but the following night sam cook was there and sam cook knew that it wasn't a gospel show and played his sam cook hits and was very well received by the audience. So this brought back Richard's competitive streak. And no. Richard <laughs> and Billy Preston warmed up in darkness before launching in to Long Tall Sally. And the crowd went absolutely bug fuck. Warmed up in darkness? Like what? Yeah, I don't I think that they were like, you know, like we're gonna like, you know, do the do the little blah blah blah, but don't don't bring the lights up. <laughs> Um, a show at Manfe- Mansfield's Granada Theater ended early because fans bum-rushed the stage. Oh, shit. Hearing of Richard's shows and how wild they were, Brian Epstein, manager of the Beatles, asked Richard to allow the Beatles to open on some of the tour dates, to which he agreed. Fun. So... For those of you keeping score at home, we've mentioned the Beatles. The Beatles also started playing Tutti Free at their concerts in Hamburg. However, there's no surviving recorded version of that. Um, but in I know, in the Get Back sessions that were the subject of last year's documentary series, according to the Beatles biographer Alan J. Weiner, the Beatles did record a version of Tutti Free in that session, and Paul McCartney recorded a sound check of him playing Tutti Frutti or something like Paul McCartney, like recorded a sound checks album of like all the songs that he played during sound check and released it. And Tutti Frutti's on one of them. Oh, I don't that's know, man. Interesting. So some more wild stuff about little Richard. And, and this is like the stuff that he had to repent for. This is from Vulture. In the 1985 book, the life and times of little Richard, which was an authorized biography written by Charles White, Richard des- described a 1950s escapade with his longtime friend, stripper Lee Angel, and 
the new budding rock star, Buddy Holly. (laughs) Quote, one time, Buddy came into my dressing room while I was jacking off with Angel sucking my titty. Nice. Angel had the fastest tongue in the West. (laughs) She was doing that to me, and Buddy took out his thing. She opened up her legs, and he put it in her. He was having sex with Angel. I was jacking off, and Angel was sucking me when they introduced Buddy's name on stage. He finished and went to stage, still fastening himself up. I'll never forget that. He came and went. Oh, my God. (laughs) Apparently, Richard fucking loved orgies. There's like a lot of Richard, (laughs) little Richard orgy material. (laughs) But he also loved voyeurism. One of, the, one of his other kinks was watching others, a habit that got him in hot water a few times. In one instance in 1955, he got caught in a car watching a couple go at it and spent three days in jail. Jeez. In 84, he told Rolling Stone that he'd also watch his bandmates during their orgies. Quote, I used to like to watch these people having sex with my bandmen. They should have called me Richard the Watcher. Oh my God, that's creepy. He also, partially because he liked watching, I guess, just masturbated constantly. Quote, everyone used to tell me that I should get a trophy for jacking off. I did it so much. I used to be a professional jack offer. I would do it just to be doing something. Seven, eight times a day. Jesus Christ. All right. Hey, no shame in the game. That's just a lot of time on your hands. It is a lot of time on your hands. On a few occasions, Richard would... uh, take a shit in a box or other receptacle and give it to people as a present as a present uh-huh he did this to his mother oh my god as well as an elderly female neighbor quote she wanted to know what i had brought her she said let's see what richard has brought has brought for me and then i just heard ah, ah i'm gonna kill him jesus he liked to give old women poop i guess so that's not okay Rumor is that Richard's marriage to Ernestine Harvin ended because he was arrested for a homosexual encounter in a bus station men's room. But there's no like direct connection. It just was like around the same time. But Mm. he was arrested for a sexual encounter with a man in a bus station restroom. And these were times, this is BET, these were times when gay men were often targeted for arrest by homophobic law enforcement, (laughs) unlike today. Bars and locations where queer men frequented were preyed upon, but Little Richard hasn't really spoken publicly about this arrest. Though a teetotaler in his early career, Richard got into the world of alcohol and drugs with the same gusto as he did music. He did marijuana, cocaine, PCP, heroin, LSD, and more. This is a quote from People Magazine. I was blowing about $1,000 of cocaine a day holy fuck how much cocaine is that you don't know that's a lot of cocaine in 1956 that's like 15 g's of cocaine a day when i'd blow my nose blood and flesh would come out on my handkerchief ew after professional setbacks and personal tragedies including the loss of his brother from a heart attack in the 70s he eventually got clean um but he struggled on and off with drug addiction for many years and in 81 he told fred saxon who was like an interviewer i used to take so much cocaine my nose was big enough to park diesel trucks in 
Holy fuck. He also had run-ins with some other famous musicians. Not the same kind of run-ins as he had with Buddy Holly. But he once fired a teenage Jimi Hendrix. He fired him? Yeah. So Hendrix was a side man for Little Richard in the mid-60s. He just played the guitar. He just played the guitar. He was like in, in, in the band. Accounts vary on the reason that Little Richard let Jimmy go from the band, but they, the excuses include constant tardiness, too much showmanship, like Jimmy would upstage Little Richard, which is a definite no-no, uh, money, unrequited sexual advances, but their brief collaboration did include one recording session, which produced a song called I Don't Know What You've Got, But It's Got Me. So this is the one surviving recording of uh, Little Richard featuring Jimi Hendrix. This is weird because they feel like from different fucking planets. But this is 1965. This is like four years before Hendrix died. Sorry, five years before Hendrix died. This is kind of cool. I don't hate this. I like it. Yeah. And that's Hendrix on the guitar. So there's a rumor of an entire album that they did together called Friends from the Beginning. This is from a Jimi Hendrix website. If you type the words Little Richard and Jimi Hendrix into Google, always the best place to start for a thoroughly researched article, you'll see an album called Friends from the Beginning, but this album has been decredited. It's discredited. It's a fake. Neither Jimmy nor Little Richard played on it, and it was an attempt to cash in on Hendrix's name following his death. Oh, fuck. So they like faked an album. Who's they? Someone who wanted to, you know, earn... Like evil day. Yeah, evil money person. But... <laughs> In 1973, for the Jimi Hendrix documentary, Little Richard gave this kind of disjointed interview about Jimi. He was a star. When he, when I got him, he was a star. Sly told you that everybody is a star. The only problem is some people haven't been put in the dipper and pulled back on the world. That's what the answer is. That's what the answer. You got to be placed into the dipper and pulled back down on the world, and then men would see your good works and glorify God Jehovah. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix could play that rock and roll. I used to be singing rock and roll, get him woo, 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 be gone. He had that thing just romping and tumping all up under my toes. At time, he used to make my big toe shoot up in my boot. He did it so good. He gave it all to you. And that's what you want. You want it all or none. But Jimmy had this perseverance to go on. He didn't mind looking freaky. Like I don't mind it. Cause I was doing it before he was. And I knew when he saw me, he gave him confidence and great recompense of reward, my Lord. Trying to spread a little joy and love together to show the world that the end is not yet, that I got to take you higher. Not off of some cocaine, a uh, 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 piece of grass, or uh, some uh, uh, heroin. 
but Jimmy was going to take him higher than that. And he's always wanted to be this big star. But, you know, I never got a chance to see him after he made it. They would never let me come back. I said, why? What did I do? I had something to tell him. And I never did. So now I have to talk about it and let him know it was good. I just want to let him know that I knew you was going to make it. So it seems like Richard thought that Jimi Hendrix had it a little too easy, which like, okay. I mean, when you're, he's, Richard did suffer a lot. So I'm not saying that it's not like a comparison, but like no black musician at the time had it easy. Um, but this, this story is true that, that Richard was never allowed to go backstage to talk to Jimmy at Jimmy's shows. So that oh, seems really? like there was kind of some bad blood between Jimmy and Richard. But we don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. And Richard likes to now claim credit for this and that. I always knew you'd be a star. Yada, yada. Right. This, by the way, is definitely in his drug phase. He is <laughs> fucked what up. What do you mean? You seem totally fine. Um, but by the my, by the mid-70s, Richard was ready for a change. As Billboard detailed during, this is from Grunge, as Billboard detailed during the mid to late 50s, Richard rolled out the hits, raked in the dough, but with fame came homosexual encounters, which he himself deemed unnatural. So when he renounced rock and roll and attended college to study theology, he tried to suppress his attraction to men, but he was caught asking a deacon's son to expose himself and his gospel career was like kind of dead on it dead on arrival Hmm. but in 75 his brother had a heart attack and this prompted him to give up secular music again and become a preacher he had promised to lend money to one of his brothers but he delayed lending the money and in, in favor of doing a cocaine and sex party. It's his words, cocaine and sex party. And then Sweet. that brother died. So he was Oof. racked with guilt, and he again disavowed homosexuality and rock and roll. In 1984, he spoke with Jet Magazine, and he said, I was ignorant, illiterate, really. So I was so glad to be famous, but I, if I had my life to live over again, one of my greatest desires would be to be more educated so I could protect myself. Instead of living his life over again, Richard battled specialty records over and over and over. Specialty records was the record label that made him famous, but it was also the one that cut his royalties. Hmm. So little Richard first signed with specialty records in 55 and per the terms of the contract, he would own all the music rights and receive 50% of the royalties. And then eventually he learned that specialty wasn't paying him. And then he sold the publishing rights for 50 bucks. So instead of earning a fortune, he got half of a percent per record sale. He did this or they did this on his behalf? I think it says, unfortunately, he sold the publishing rights for $50. I think he sold it to them. They like, okay. They like cheated him. Um, Richard sued in 1959 and they settled for $11,000 in exchange for him waiving his royalty claims for multiple classics including tutti frutti but this wasn't good enough because eleven thousand dollars is fucking nothing compared to the the success of tutti frutti and so in 84 richard sued specialty records again for 112 million dollars and to gain regain control of his own music and they reached an out-of-court settlement in 86 so no one knows i'm guessing he he did okay though 
Back in the early, this is from grunge.com, back in the early 80s when Little Richard had quit music and drugs again to devote his energies to the Seventh-day Adventist branch of Christianity again, he made friends with a woman at his church named Criola Jones. Criola's husband died in 1982, and Richard sang at the funeral, and he befriended the family and doled out advice and guidance to Danny Jones, Criola's son. So this is Danny's quote. He would always encourage me. I had six sisters and three brothers living in a poor neighborhood doing whatever, and Criola asked little Richard to informally but fully take custody of Danny at the time he was a teen. Wow. This is Danny's quote. She didn't want me turning out like the rest of my sisters and brothers. Little Richard accepted. No papers were ever signed, merely a handshake deal to seal it. But Danny moved in with Richard, and they lived together for 30 years. It's a nice long time together. Nice long time. And um, Richard, at this, at this point in his career, was living in hotels. And so he, this, is, he, this is when he was living at the Hyatt on the Sunset Strip in L.A. He just like didn't care to have a house. He was just living in hotels. So he had enough money to do that? Yeah. So he must have gotten some money from that settlement. Also in the 80s, he became the go-to celebrity wedding officiant. Ooh, that's fun. He married... East e Street band Stephen Van Zant and Tom Petty and Dana York. Though Petty did yell, "Shut up!" at one point. <laughs> um, and Cindy Lauper and her husband David Thornton and Demi Moore and Bruce Willis. Ah. And he at this point he's also making appearances like he's got the Little Richard brand. He showed up on Miami Vice, Baywatch, Martin, and in a 1994. In 1994, a very special episode of Full House. Do you remember this appearance on Full House? I might. This is. It's I, definitely I remembered not him, clear in the memory. Yeah, same. I remembered him showing up because I think that was the first time I ever saw his face. Mm-hmm. But um, this is the blurb from Rolling Stone. When the arts program at Little Michelle Tanner's school is threatened, de facto dad Joey steps in and runs for PTA president. He gets out the vote. He his get out the vote rally features a performance from the uncle of Michael's of Michelle's friend Denise. Remember Denise? Mm-hmm. Like the one black character. So her mm-hmm. uncle, clearly Little Richard. Um, <laughs> he played Itsy Bitsy Spider on Uncle Jesse's keyboard. And then he knocked out a live rendition of Keep a Knockin'. You keep a knockin', but you can't come in with Jesse and the Rippers. Love Jesse and the Rippers. Love Jesse. I found a Jesse and the Rippers shirt at a thrift store what? once. And I don't know what ha- I bought it, but I don't know what happened to it. Oh my God, that's so sad. I know. It's one of the one of my big regrets in life. <laughs> in 95, he tried to reconcile his faith and sexual identity. And he told Penthouse, I've been gay all my life. And I know God is a God of love, not hate. But then in 2017, he tried to repent again. It really seems like he's he struggled. Yeah, it really seems like he struggled his whole life. But he was born in the fucking 30s, like and in Georgia. And he was beaten and made fun of. And so I I I feel a lot of sympathy for. Oh, yeah, it's so sad for, for him. In 1999, he told Mojo, quote, my greatest achievement would have to be Tutti Frutti. It took me out of the kitchen at the Greyhound bus station. I was making $10 a week, working 12 hours a day. And Tutti Frutti was a blessing and a lesson. I thank God for Tutti Frutti. Hmm. In 2009, 
Tree Free was added to the National Registry at the Library of Congress. So it was like one of the kind of recordings that they moved into the Library of Congress is notable. Um, and this is part of their statement. Quote, since its manufacture, Little Richard's Tutti Frutti has been called the greatest single rock record and a cannon shot among the first volleys that heralded a new age of 150 proof nonsense song that distilled the essence of rock and roll. I'd agree. From Grunge, on May 9th, 2020, Little Richard's rock and roll soul left his body. He was 87. According to The Guardian, Richard spent the latter part of his life in declining health. He had suffered a heart attack, a stroke, and hip issues. And his agent, Dick Allen, said that Richard succumbed to bone cancer. Quote, he was battling for a good while, many years. Allen revealed, I last spoke to him about two or three weeks ago. Mm. And news of his passing rocked the world of music and some of the biggest names in the business paid tribute to the larger than life icon mick jagger called little richard the biggest inspiration of my early teens jimmy page lauded him as a rock and roll pioneer and ringo Starr called him one of my all-time musical heroes there aren't enough adjectives or thank yous you could say to a person who inspired so many careers and wrote the soundtrack to so many happy memories fortunately Little Richard already knew how great he was. I don't remember him dying at all. I mean, I know it was 2020. So. It was May of 2020. So it was like a big time for people dying. But he turned, it, they, they don't say anything about COVID. It was bone cancer. But I'm sure, you know, the state of the world didn't help. So what are we going out on today? What are we going out on today? So it turns out. In 1993, on January 19th, Little Richard performed, not Tutti Free, but Go- Good Golly Miss Molly, with Chuck Berry at President Bill Clinton's first inaugural gala. Fun. So we're going to listen to Little Richard and Chuck Berry singing Good Golly Miss Molly for, for Bill, and they do some fun lyrical changes. Also fuck Bill Clinton, but okay. Well, I, I picked it because, you know, it's like a... You know, Tutti Fruit is like kind of a sex pervert song. So, yeah. you know, anyway. <laughs> it fits. There's, there's a thematic connection. You get it. Where can people find us on the internet? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. And for longer and weirder stuff, hit us up. Lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. To support the show, go to lyricsforlunch.com and click support the show. And tune in next week when we do this all over again with a brand new song. I didn't ruin this song, right? Nope. There's love no it. ruining. No ruining. There was no ruining. I love a good uh, pervy sex song. Love a good pervy sex song. So until next time, <laughs> I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying a wop bop bamboo.